Hey there, Emo Over Easy listeners, Drew here, bringing you a clinical grind. We haven't done this for a while. We're recording from Florida on our Emo Over Easy retreat, joined by my two co-hosts, Andy and Tanner. Thanks for joining, guys. Thank you for hosting us. Yeah, this has been a blast. We're doing something new, doing an Emo Over Easy retreat, um, doing a little planning, getting some episodes recorded, and trying to make ourselves more awesome for you as the listeners. So, Look for some cool stuff to come. One of the things we don't want to forget to mention is check out our new EM Over Easy email. If you haven't already signed up for it on our website, emovereasy.com, please do so. It's fun tidbits from our lives, things we're listening to, things we're reading, things we're watching, and a few other fun uh, antics, kind of like a short stack episode in email form. We promise we will not spam you. We will not sell this to anybody. It's going to come out essentially every other week in between episodes and just highlight some of the fun things we're doing, places we're going, and whatnot. So again, sign up. It's uh, Tanner's brainchild, so kudos to Tanner for doing it. We're having a lot of fun with it. Check it out. It's a lot better than a short stack, in my opinion. There it is. So want to bring you guys a clinical grind, a case I had really not all that long ago in the emergency department, and I'm going to set the stage for you. I was working a string of overnights. Um, I don't do that many overnights in our group. We're, we're lucky that we have a couple nocturnists, but every once in a while they need to take vacation, and I'm always happy to step up to the plate and do those overnights. I enjoy overnights, particularly when they're limited in number. I know, Tanner, you're a bit of a nocturnist uh, yourself, but Andy and I feel the same way about overnights in general. So I was working with a stellar team of residents on what I expected to be a really rough early week overnight shift, and it ended up being very manageable, pretty tame. And then sometime in the wee hours in the morning roughly the 3 a.m. mark, we get the encode from EMS that a V-fib arrest is coming in. Get prepared, set the stage, get our trauma room, our recess bay set up, ready to go. The senior resident is uh, soon to be a EMS fellow is going to lead the case. And I have a, uh, a crack second year at the, uh, at the second position. And I take my position on a stool in the back of the room. That's what I've been known to do from uh, our residents to watch. in the recess bay. I'm, I'm short for those of you who haven't met me in I mean, person. I wasn't going to say it, but... Vertically challenged. I have a picture uh, of this that will go with this episode. Right yeah, so. vertically challenged. So there's a couple of reasons I stand on it. And this is important for me. It's also kind of important for the case. I stand on the stool because it gives me a little bit more of a bird's eye view. I stand on the stool next to the charting nurse at her computer so we can have a conversation without distracting from everything else going on. But it is also a physical reminder that I am to stay on the stool unless everything's hitting the fan and I have to get off. If the nurses and the residents running the case, the wheels are coming off, then I get off the stool. If the wheels stay on, I stay on the stool. And it's a physical barrier for me, but it allows me to see everything that's going on. So a patient comes in by, by EMS it ended up being a VTAC arrest, not a VFib arrest, but they were pulses VTAC. They had the Lucas device, a CPR compression device going on. Patient was successfully intubated in the field by EMS. And it was a young 60s or so male who at the time didn't have any re significant report in medical history. So we thought this was a relatively healthy uh, early 60s male coming in with what sounded actually like a witness arrest at a... Um, facility that had some help that he was in rehab for. That was all the information we had at the time. Short period of downtime, less than 20 minutes of downtime. It got intubated, compressions going, a uh, couple rounds of defib in the field that were unsuccessful. And then we get the patient in our recess bay. No worries. That kind of sounds pretty typical at this point. Um, we set the stage really well. We had a good nursing crew. 
got additional IV access established, put them on end tidal CO2, had good waveform with uh, end tidal in the high 20s, low 30s with compressions, and we got into the mix. So in the mix included uh, another round of defib that was unsuccessful in converting this. So here's where the clinical grind starts to come in. So far, nothing special. This is something, this is bread and butter, yep. emergency medicine. We decide to do uh, dual sequential defibrillation. Okay. Right? So now we're starting to talk outside the box a little bit. There's some mixed evidence as to whether this is beneficial or not. Are we even supposed to do it because it could void warranties on our uh, AED defibrillators and monitors in the department? So just in case somebody doesn't know what dual sequential is, we're talking about shocking somebody back-to-back with two different shocking devices, essentially. Mm-hmm. Correct. So pads... First set of pads placed in the typical um, right upper chest, left lower chest, and the second set of pads anterior to posterior. And there's debate as to how you do this. Do you shock one and then the other, or do you hit shock at the same time, and you're essentially trying to restart the heart via two pathways? Obviously, there's no way to coordinate those shocks exactly. So we shocked at the same time, understanding that it was going to be one and then the other delivered, but essentially two joules to the heart. With that... We actually converted the patient back into a rhythm wow. that was semi-perfusing. Mm-hmm. And this is where the case gets even more tricky. I love semi-perfusing. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> so we're, we now have an organized rhythm. We're no longer in, in pulseless VTAC. We have some cardiac motion on ultrasound. There is a weak palpable pulse, and we have a weak blood pressure at this point map in the forties to fifties, but we're able to get it. We're able to get a pulse ox, right? So now I have a peri arrest patient who is intubated, who went from being VTAC to now being a sinus rhythm. And I'll give you guys one guess. What does the sinus rhythm show? STEMI heart attack. Yeah, this is danger. Will Robinson wide, wide complex, but clear like wide complex QRS are borderline wide, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it still is a sinus rhythm, but you can see there's some, some widening of the QRS complex and then just T wave elevations in your anterior leads. There's reciprocal change. What's going to cause a VTAC arrest that we get somebody out of it's a STEMI in the first place, right? So even if this didn't show a STEMI, you still have to consider PCI going to the cath lab as, as what is appropriate for this patient. But now I have an EKG that is just looks like absolute, uh, garbage and is a STEMI problem is this patient is not stable. Yeah. So, Okay. No problem. Let's try to stabilize the patient a little more, get some pressors on board, and make sure we're doing all that post-arrest care that's good for the patient. And what happens? Codes Arrest. again. Codes again. Mm-hmm. A couple minutes of CPR, another round of epinephrine, get amiodarone on board, um, the second dose of amiodarone, and we get the patient back. And this happens two or three more times. Meanwhile, we get some information back on the patient, which is our pH is... In the low sevens, but pretty appropriate, like yeah. 725. I'm running an end tidal CO2 in the high 20s with good waveform. I am having cardiac wall motion. Pupils are equal and reactive. And with compressions, the patient actually has some intermittent purposeful movement. So all signs are pointing towards this is a salvageable patient. Yeah. yeah. What the patient needs is PCI, the cath lab, but I can't get them there. So what are you guys thinking? I that's a that's a very tough scenario because we know what the patient needs. We know how to do that, but 
it's a more of a matter of how the patient responds. It sounds like this is going to be a case that probably ends up being a discussion with the person who can deliver the PCI, interventional cardiology, and just discussing it with them and seeing what they think. Sometimes you get lucky and it makes sense and they're like, you know what, if you can get me a window, let's do it. Uh, if it's something that there isn't a window, you know, then it won't happen. Um, but it, it's, it sounds like kind of one of those gray zone areas where you just, you, you know what it needs, but you have to find, find a way to make that happen. Yeah. These are always tough. Cause I feel like, again, like Tanner said, we know what the solution is and, but the solution requires a stable patient. And so what's the, you know, knowing where, knowing where Drew works, this is not an ECMO center. I think if, if you practice in one of the crazy places that does this, they would say, we'll put them on ECMO. That's not an option. Yeah, um, we're, we're a community academic shop yeah. that has good backup, but yeah. not everything in ECMO is um, not on the table. You know, and, and then it's the, you know, they've, they've done some studies that show you can do compressions in a cath lab and cath these people, but it's very unsafe. They have an increased risk of dissecting their LAD and causing a bunch of other perimortal problems, which, and it doesn't sound like that's a good solution at three o'clock in the morning when the cath lab's not there and like you can't. Right. If, if I yeah. could bring the interventional cardiologist bedside as we're making these decisions sure, and sure. have a, a conversation, that'd be one thing. If it was two o'clock in the afternoon and the cath lab team was there and, yeah. and we could consider doing that, fine. But a STEMI activation at this point is bringing a cath lab team in that might take 15 to 20 minutes to get there. I have no idea what this patient's going to look like in 15 to 20 minutes because they're intermittently, they're, they're in a true peri-arrest phase where they're we're needing constant pressors. We have to do a few minutes of compressions. We, yeah. you know, it's it going essentially in and out of PEA arrest at this point with a consistent STEMI rhythm on the monitor. And that, and that, that to me kind of is, you know, taking a step back, you know, our job is, is very difficult and we, and we get these cases sometimes that we feel like there's a chance, but we also know that the odds are stacked against us and, and against the patient. And knowing that, you know, we can do everything right in this scenario. Even if, even if you get everything back, you know, it may not turn out okay. Um, and, and knowing that in the long run, we can try everything. It may not make a difference. Uh, it is, I think going to be probably part of the thing you have to at least consider here is, you know what? We can try everything, but if it doesn't get to the point where we can get the patient stable enough to get the procedure they need to get them to the cath lab, that's that's reality, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think this goes to a, a greater claim that as you try to get you know him stable enough, a lot of think I think a lot of people are going to say, "What well, is convince your consultant to come in?" And I think it's important to remember that they have some of the same concerns that we do. Is exactly. they want to do what's safe? Well, they want to do what is safe and right for the patient in the safest way possible. Exactly. And it, taking somebody basically dead to the cath lab is not really a safe it, option for anybody. It doesn't help like, anybody. Yeah. And and that would be my maybe maybe my initial gut take on this would be, you know what. You can't, you can't call a cath team in for something that isn't technically cathable at this point, mm -hmm. but you can maybe open that line of communication and say, Hey, I got a patient. It looks like a STEMI. If I can get them stable, we're going to be calling you heads up, you know, that type of thing. And maybe priming the pump a little bit so that if you get that window of mm -hmm. success, yeah. all right, let's run, let's roll. Absolutely. You know, so in my mind, I was thinking of my prognostic indicators, right? So if this patient had a pH, less than seven, if this patient's entitled CO2 was less than 20, if there wasn't some type of purposeful movement, if I did not have uh, reactive pupils, then I very likely just would have 
terminating. Yeah, it. sure. Um, even with somebody who uh, essentially the next time they coded, I would say, okay, we're done. We're, we're yeah. done. You know, we'll if if we can keep the heart beating as bad as the EF looks on Echo right now, uh, great. And we'll get them up to the ICU and we can sort this out. But if um, if they code again, then then we're done. The problem in this situation to me was looking at a guy that looked relatively healthy. His age was relatively young, and all the pros- prognostic indicators were pointing in the right direction. And I felt, That's tough. for whatever reason, the need to continue. Mm-hmm. That this is not a patient totally uh, I could call. And, and I, calling a code is always a emotionally charged thing to do. It's e- easier under some circumstances where either the patient's age and comorbidities tell you there's no good outcome, or the, again, the prognostic indicators tell you there's there's really no good outcome. But But in this situation... I did not feel with the information I had in hand that I could make that decision to call this code. So I did call the interventionalist, uh, somebody who I work very well with. I know, I know well, and is a great interventionalist and called him at three in the morning and essentially said, Hey, this is what I got. I have an unstable STEMI patient who is intermittently needing compressions and a lot of support to stay alive. I don't feel comfortable activating the cath lab right now. I'm going to push TPA. Interesting. Yeah. And that I, I, silence you hear on... I, I mean, the silence you hear on the phone, and it, which probably mimics the silence you just heard on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that, that... Because it's outside the box. It's outside the box. But it's, within realm of reason. It's a little bit of Wild Wild West medicine, and I recognized at the time, and I told him, I said, hey, I all the indications say that this is a potentially salvable patient. I don't think I can comfortably call you in. Here's the situation. And at three in the morning with a very groggy interventionalist who did not fully grasp what I was saying, it goes, I don't understand what you're telling me. Why are you pushing TPA on a STEMI patient when I can come in and cath them? And I put it to him very bluntly. Are you going to cath somebody with a map in the 40s that is needing compressions and a lot of pressors intermittently to stay alive? And he goes, oh, no. Okay, do whatever you need to do to get the patient better and let me know how it goes. Sure. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to be fair, TPA is not outside the realm of, of medical knowledge because historically that was something that was done very commonly in places that didn't have PCI. Right. If you don't have PCI and you're greater than 90 minutes from a PCI center, TPA or some type of thrombolytics is still the, that is the action of choice, right? That is the, the most beneficial treatment for the patient if you cannot do time-sensitive PCI on them. It's not crazy, but it's just different. It's different. And yeah. it's not something that we're doing very often. If this patient was an easy PE, which in this situation they weren't, we'd push... TPA in a not even think about it. Yeah, yeah. in an arrest situation yeah. for PE. So uh, I made that decision. We're going to do it. The hard part about the decision is exactly what the interventionalist told me, which is why are you pushing TPA on a patient with a STEMI in a PCI center? And also knowing that I've now committed my ED to at least another 30 minutes of running a code. Yeah. Where we are a single attending with two residents at the wee hours in the morning. So if something else bad comes in, if I have another couple complicated patients or even just the four or 5 a.m. rush comes, we're not in a good position to be prepared. I mean, I'm really committing my ED team to another minimum half hour of full war resuscitation, Mm -hmm. which is not lost on me at all. Yeah. 
to me, that's, that's still the right call though, because in our line of work, you can, you can try to plan and prepare as best you can, but you never know what's going to come in. And the reality is, is if you do get a bolus of patients, you have resources in terms of residents and you can delegate truly, if you need to dispersing people in directions to help ebb the tide and the flow that you're getting to make sure that a, the new patients are as safe as they can be, but also Absolutely. taking care of literally the sickest patient in the hospital at the time. Yeah. To me, this is, I mean, to me, the quandary for me would be is, is that, like you said, it's convincing your nursing. Cause I think in my mind, as I'm, you're telling me this, I'm thinking, all right, so I have to convince I'm decided I have to convince my residents that we're going to not go to PCI. I have to convince nursing. And then I have to have a conversation with my intensivist. And then the repeat conversation with the, the cardiologist and say, all right, so this is what we did. Like, and if it worked out, that's what we did. And then, and then be, cause even though we talked about it's within the realm of appropriateness, it's in the ACLS algorithm, you are now going to be the most scrutinized person in the hospital for 72 hours. And that's like a secondary thing. But to me, like that's going through my mind. It's like, everybody's got, when they hear this case, they're going to be like, you did what? Like everybody, your fellow attendings, other nurses, other residents, you're, you've officially put that kind of target on your back, all while worrying about these other things. So to me, this is this is a great case. Yeah, and a couple things in my favor. I didn't. I did not call the intensivist, which maybe I should have. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. I felt that I had the blessing of mm-hmm. the. I don't want to say blessing. That's a strong word. I had the understanding of the <laughs> interventionalist. He acknowledged that you were we, going to do this. I was in a. I was in a quandary that this was. It was either essentially terminate the resuscitation or push TPA. I had a pharmacist that was on board. They gave me no pushback, um, which is incredible because at times under these situations, they look at you and go, this is a multi-thousand dollar medication we're about to give somebody for what? And that's, again, that is a understandable and reasonable question. And also, fortunately, it was one of our local EMS agencies that we have an incredible relationship where I said, hey, I'm about to push this medication. They hadn't left yet. They were wanting to see where things were going. And we hadn't taken the uh, compression device off. We were just using it intermittently. And they said, if you want to keep it, you can keep it. We'll take a nap on your couch in the EMS room. So at least from a personnel standpoint, I had freed up the ED significantly in that I wasn't going to be running through our nurses and our techs and potentially even us as physicians doing compressions. So I had a plugged in Lucas device that was going to do 30 minutes of quality compressions on a patient. So essentially all I had to do was monitor the patient. One of the things I like what you just kind of said there though, is that you had multiple stop points of people that could have helped you change your mind should that be the right course, right? You have not only the consultant that you talked with, you have nurses in the room, you have a pharmacist there at bedside, you have residents, people who are constantly checking you and questioning you throughout, which is plenty of time for you to make sure that you're doing the right thing for the patient at the right time. Like it, truly like yeah. you're sitting there and you're, you're having check after check after check of people that you have to convince that even though you think it's the right thing, they're going to make sure you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And for full disclosure, the resident and I made this decision together and we reached that point together. I, I want to give her all the credit that is deserved that she ran an incredibly good code. And this was something like, all right, what, what do we do next? Sure. And we both said TPA is an option. So yeah. This was not all me. She mm-hmm. was she was there also and, and did a fantastic job. But yeah, we had we had our team behind what we were about to do, which is awesome. Which that's, to that's, me that's, is, that's, is, that's all you need, right? It's one hundred percent. Right? Because if you have your team involved, then it's never going to spin out of control, which is awesome. Yeah. 
So we had all the other things we needed in place. We're monitoring end-title CO2. We had dropped an A-line at this point, so we could monitor really good cardiac output and make sure that our compressions were effective. And I made the decision at that point that we were going to push TPA and start a 30-minute clock, and we were not going to do any more pulse checks. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. That we would watch the A-line, that we would watch end-title CO2, and we would watch the patient's response because, again, there was some intermittent purposeful movement. And if any of those changed that we would then consider doing a pulse check. Otherwise, we were just going to do 30 minutes of straight circulation. We're going to check after 30 minutes. If the patient had a pulse, we would then, or if there was a reason to check earlier, mm-hmm. we would check. Yeah. If they didn't have a pulse after 30 minutes, we were going to terminate resuscitation. Just out of curiosity, where where did that protocol quote unquote like come up from like was that a was that a group decision of is there any benefit to pulse checks as per acls which we all know is not necessarily 100 percent accurate in terms of benefit and and all that kind of stuff but was that just a hey we know we have to do this for 30 minutes let's give them the best chance because we're seeing response with good circulation that was it there's there was nothing to tell me that that was the right decision other than in the moment knowing that the anytime we're off the chest, that's less of the TPA circulating, that's less sure. no, blood yeah. supply to the heart and the brain. That's that's, it, that's proven in multiple right. studies. That So let's just do it. And and I felt confident enough with our A-line and our end-title CO2 and the patient's response that if at, at the 10-minute mark, if we had a really good outcome with the TPA, that we would see something. Sure that would give me the indication that I should stop mm-hmm. and, and check and see where the patient resuscitation is. So we did it. Uh, I actually got a phone call from the interventionalist during that process, and he goes, hold on. I just, I just woke up <laughs> enough to remember what you did. Tell me, tell me again what you're doing <laughs> and why I didn't come into cap. Wait, okay, the bigger question is, who leaked? Like, Was this like a press leak to the interventional team upstairs? Or the, not the interventional, but the intensivist team upstairs? Like, oh, sorry, it was not the intensivist. It was the interventionalist. Oh, so, okay, okay. Let, okay. Me, <laughs> I was just, like, let me just re-record that part. <laughs> so as we're doing the compressions, about 10, 15 minutes in, I do get a phone call from the interventionalist. And it was... So tell me again what you're doing and why you're doing it. <laughs> he woke up enough. He was yeah, like, yeah, it was one of those. I think he tried to go back tried to, to sleep, go back sleep and realize, and then, wait, what, and then what? started thinking about what I had said a little more. And was like, so what the what? Tell me again what's going on. And it was a very interesting conversation. He goes, I'm still really confused as to why you'd push TPA on a STEMI patient in a PCI center. And I, again, reiterated that this patient wasn't stable enough. Did you, do you want to cast somebody who I'm doing compressions on and who is in a pericode situation or even just has a map this, in the forties, this patient won't make it won't make down it. the hall right. to yeah. your PCI. Right. And, and I, I said that and he goes, absolutely. I understand. Sure. Please let me know what the outcome in it is. And so, uh, the intensivist team, the critical care team, the resident, two residents on that night at this point were in the ed because of course our charge nurse had called up to the icu and said hey we have somebody you need to reserve a bed for us this is a critically ill patient so they came down and at about the 27 minute mark our end title jumps up into the 30s our map goes from being in the 40s with compressions to being in the 60s to 70s and there's a little more purposeful movement with the patient and at that point i said just let's finish off for 30 minutes Uh At the 30-minute mark, we had improved cardiac wall motion, and I had good palpable pulses, and all I needed was a continued, we had him on a uh, norepinephrine drip, and we had him on a vasopressin drip. And those two pressors were able to sustain a pressure 
that was reasonable with a good map in the 60s yeah. until the patient got to the ICU. Wow. Now, I wish I could tell you that it was all roses from there and the patient had a great outcome. Sure. Unfortunately, they didn't. Um, they lived for approximately another 24 hours. A lot of discussion with the um, interventional team and the critical care team about getting rid of the cath lab. And at about the 18-hour mark into post my resuscitation after admission to the ICU, the patient coded again. They were able to get him back, coded a second time, at which point the family said, enough is enough, and with true care. But given the circumstance, I still feel confident to this day, a couple months later, that this was the right course of action for the patient. And even given the hard situation and the hard decisions to make, that that was the best thing for the patient at the time. Yeah, I think you have to. I think too many times, like, unfortunately, some people listening to this podcast will hear that last little bit, and they'll think that, well, maybe you shouldn't have done it. And I feel like that's a really crappy thing to think about because too many times we get patients back, not as complicated as this one, and they never leave the hospital. But we've given that family 24 hours to grieve, and we've given you know other things time to, 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 to progress to where it's good that it's happening or it's better that it's happening. And, and, and we've also had these people like this where they do walk out of the hospital. And I, and I don't get to play that judge at the moment at this decision point. And I think that's the, that's the key thing to remember. One of the key things. Yeah, to no, and I, I agree. Like, I think that's the hard part in this scenario is, is a lot of times we're working with minimal information, minimal ability to predict the future. And we're just doing with what we see in front of us. And, and the one thing that I keep coming back to here is exactly what you said earlier, which is every sign is pointing that there's still a chance. Yeah. And that's, that's what we deserve or that's what our patients deserve is us to give them a chance if they have one. And it sounds like you did everything that you possibly could. I think my favorite part, not my favorite part, my favorite part of this situation is that I got the patient to the ICU. And like Andy said, I, it, if nothing else, I gave the family time to see the patient and to have a few minutes with their loved ones to make that decision themselves, that yeah. it was time to go as opposed to me making the decision. Because uh, at the time, how did I know that this patient wasn't going to have a good outcome? Uh, there was no way for me to know when I got them upstairs to the ICU which way it was going to go. And I gave the, the patient a fighting chance. But it was the medical student at the time on the shift with us at the wee hours in the morning who, as things calmed down, looks at me and go, how did you know to do that? What made you push TPA on that patient? And I literally looked back at the medical student. And I said, just go read about ACLS. Yeah. This, I said, we are, I am so far out of the realm of normal and protocol in the situation that I can't even begin to tell you what it was. And for you as a student, there, there is no educational Pearl for you, other than sometimes we do some crazy stuff in the ED. What, what you need to do is go go learn how to do this in the standard way, and, yeah. and that's and that's the reality of our job, though. Is in the ER is is we take what is protocolized for people who are not emergency medicine board certified physicians uh-huh. to help them get patients to us, so that we can do more and hopefully get them to our critical care docs who can do more than us or the interventional cardiologist who can do more than us. Like it's all a line of you do what you can and get it to the next step. Sure. And until, until that patient or person declares, Hey, this is my time. You have to do everything you possibly can. Yeah. I think it's a a point that we work in the extremes at times. Hmm. 
where we push the envelope of medical knowledge, we push the envelope of patient care, we extrapolate, well, this works in this patient, and this is a simple, like, it's so much of what we do is taking that next step and kind of innovating the way we do things to where this is a reality that as a clinician, you're going to be faced, maybe not this specific case, but we're going to have, you're going to have a boundary like this pushed numerous times in your career. And one, you have to be ready to take care of it. Cause if you're not smart, you're not going to know to do this. If you don't read enough, you're not going to know how to do this. And then also if you're not confident enough in yourself, cause I think we've probably all had a similar case where we were just like, I just, I don't feel comfortable with this. And we just call it or we, or, or a decision tree is very similar to where we're just like, tonight's not the night. And we just let them go where we could have, if we had a little faith in ourselves and the knowledge we had and got our team on board, maybe made a difference. Yeah. The stars aligned in this situation and it was a, uh, it was a cool case, a great learning experience for me, uh, for the ED team, for the, the resident and the student involved. So thanks for letting me share it with you guys. It's, uh, something that I am excited to talk about. Yeah. That's a really, really cool case. Lots of, lots of depth there. Lots of layers. All right, listeners. Well, hopefully you enjoyed the case as well. We'd love to hear some comments and feedback as to what you do in these situations where you have to make radical decisions and think outside the box a little bit. If you want to make those comments, you can give them to us on Twitter. You can make it on our website, emoverezy.com, where you should also sign up for our email at the same time. And of course, check us out on our social media sites. Thanks so much for listening and look forward to talking to you next time. Drinking coffee black as iron and I couldn't be much higher Without falling out of my chair I've been so numb for so many years Now I'm thinking about it every day on